All right, this is lesson six, marital intimacy. If we make you blush, just look down and act like you're taking notes. We do not shy away from truth. We will not be crass, but we will be intimate in dealing with marital intimacy. I may just have to look at the men. Kind of weird to talk about this and make eye contact with like Mama Eva. <laughs> Amen. Since fornication is biblically defined as any sexual intimacy outside of holy matrimony, it would only serve our study well to look at marital intimacy through the context of Scripture, not modern culture. Our modern culture has redefined everything. It is the Orwellian doublespeak new language where we just redefine stuff so that it is no longer what it once was. Our government just did this last year when we redefined what a vaccination was. When, when I was a mineral, uh, geologist, I, I had some evidence for early young earth creation. Now, to be clear, I am not a young earth creationist. I am a creationist. I am not a young earth creationist. I don't know if that makes your head go tilt. One of my expertise is structural geology, and that's a whole long discussion right there. But I had evidence for young earth creationism. And I brought it to my mineralogy professor, who's also a believer and goes to church right over here. Great man, still friends with him to this day. And I said, this evidence seems to contradict old earth uh, geology. And he said, well, if your evidence doesn't support your hypothesis, find better evidence. That's what he said. And you're finding in today's culture of politics, academia, sexuality, if the evidence doesn't support what you want, make up your evidence or just redefine your words. We've done that now with what men and women are. We want to look at what the Bible has to say. We quoted earlier in this study uh, the culture of sex, the, the book from 1938 that studied 5,000 years of human history in over, I think, 87 cultures. And without being in a heterosexual monogamous relationship, no culture exists beyond one generation. That's history. That's real science. That's quantifiable science, not whimsical TikTok challenges. God is the creator as such. He is the creator of sexual intimacy. He designed the male and female sex organs to work and enjoy pleasure the way they do. From the beginning, sexual intimacy was designed and intended to be shared exclusively between a husband and wife. God's design was perfect, and it pleased him to make it so. We have to study what the Bible says about sexual intimacy so that we don't end up destroying it. I just bought this heat gun because we need little things around the house. We need to heat and melt things. And it has two settings. And don't you know, you should probably read the manufacturer's instruction on a heat gun. <laughs> has two settings. I mean, how hot will this thing get? Can I blister myself? Can I melt through rock with it? Can I set the house on fire? Now, I'm a man. I didn't read the instructions because I kind of know how this thing works. High and low. Turn it on on low. Whoo, that's hot right there. All right. That's all you need to know. And then you make sure it doesn't need a... Uh, ground fault interrupter or a three-pronger or whatever. But sex is the same way. We ought to read our creator's design manual to understand how things ought to work so that we don't short-circuit and destroy our culture. Genesis 2.25 says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And we've covered this verse a few times so far, that it is the man and the wife who are shameless in their nudity. The sanctity of marital intimacy that was innate at creation appears again in the New Testament. This time, the protection of the marriage bed sanctity is commanded. And I pulled this verse this time 
out of the New, uh, New American Standard Bible. And it says this, marriage is to be held in honor among all. Well, we don't do that anymore. We have made up what are now called parity marriages. You can marry anything you want to, as many people as you want to. We have folks marrying trees and robots in the earth. That's not an exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. I'm not preaching excitedly like an evangelist. People are marrying robots. They're marrying rocks. They're marrying trees. They're marrying pets. That's not marriage. That's someone who needs a therapist. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Now, we might could say this scripture is written to the believers. So maybe we exclude the pagans because pagans will always peg. So let's exclude them. But even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today, marriage is not held in honor by all. And the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled. We've always taught it, preaching out of the King James, the marriage bed is undefiled. But that would mean you couldn't possibly defile it. But I like the modern English translation because it lets you know it can be defiled. The thing that's really taking off now are threesomes. And a married man or woman is inviting a third person into their marriage bed. If the scripture says the marriage bed is undefiled, then anything you do in there goes. But that's not the case. You bring a third person into your marriage bed, you just defiled it. You bring porn into your bedroom, you've defiled it. You start engaging in weird freakish stuff that was birthed in the bathhouses of Stonewall, you've defiled it. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. He's writing this to Christians. So it's possible for Christians to be sexually immoral. That means you've defiled your marriage bed. And God will judge Christians who are adulterers. You cannot commit adultery without suffering loss. And God is so merciful, nobody falls into adultery overnight. Nobody goes from being in love with their wife or their husband to sleeping with someone they're not in covenant with overnight. That's a slow or sometimes a quick rebellion against God. Before you commit adultery, you, you sin against and leave your God. First in your mind by looking and, and, and imagining and daydreaming and then with your actions by flirting and then allowing your soul to be connected. And while your soul's connecting to the other person, you're slowly detaching from your spouse. And before long, you've created a new bond of soul and the genitalia will follow. Doesn't happen shaking hands with somebody for the first time. It's a process of rebellion and backsliding. And the Bible says the backslider shall be filled with their own ways. I do not believe, I will say it again, I do not believe there's any ministerial reconciliation for adulterous pastors or ministers. I don't believe you can reconcile them or restore them to ministry whatsoever at all under any circumstance or condition. Keep them in the church, let them be a door greeter, but they'll never be a full-time minister again. The deception that goes into that was just too horrific. This is a command for every believer to honor the holy institution of marriage. Never in human history has this commandment been more necessary. I do find it interesting because I'm a studier of world history and I'm a studier of modern politics. The West, Western civilization, which is traditionally Europe and now the U.S. and North America, these are the two great institutions they now said two weeks ago over a billion people want to migrate to. 
Now, if we're so racist, why would one a billion people that don't look white want to come here? We're not that racist. Well, they want to escape their murder, their corruption, their perversion. Of course, when that many people integrate into a society, you no longer have a society. You have something new. That's what the Assyrians did. Furthermore, only the West is pioneering great sexual perversion that brings about the judgment of God. And isn't it interesting where the light of God's gospel caused intellectualism, innovation, education, and prosperity to flourish, now the darkness of the world through perversion wants to stomp out. And so here in the West, we're pioneering the most grossest forms of perversion. We're framing it with a law and delegating it or relegating it as a protected class of citizenry. And the preachers are adulterers. And God's people love it so. Because nobody wants to be clean and nobody wants to hold a high standard. And so America will fall under the judgment like Israel did. And it will be the pastor's faults. Because they're just as perverted as the protesters on the other side of the line. So I will judge everybody equally. You don't measure up to God's standard, you'll be judged. And I invoke the judgment of God upon me first and foremost, so I can speak this boldly. Amen. This exhortation addresses the only two types of sexual sin a human can commit. Two broad categories. One, sex before marriage, always classified as pornos. Any sex, any sexual engagement before marriage, Marriage is pornos, fornication. Fornication isn't just heterosexual sex before marriage. It's bestiality before marriage. It's homosexuality before marriage. And since homosexuality is never honored in marriage and will never be married in the eyes of God, it will always be fornication, and therefore it is always condemned by Scripture. Number two, sex with someone outside of their marriage. This is always called moikio, but is also classified as pornos. So adultery is always called adultery, but adultery is classified as fornication because it's defiled intimacy. And that's what that verse covers. Sex before marriage, sex within a marriage that's defiled. These are the only two sins. And what this helps us do is build this doctrine about the exclusivity of heterosexual monogamous marital intimacy. This is something we don't teach enough, how, how precious, how sacred, how pure, how, how wonderful it is. And we'll cover it here in a minute. That sex in marriage is the one activity you only share with one person till you die. It's the most exclusive thing you can do. Everybody who's so insecure wants to be exclusive in some right. That's what marriage is for. Both forms of sexual impurity will incur the judgment of God, and I would add, even among Christians. No quicker way, well, it used to be no quicker way to lose your ministry than to sleep with the secretary. Nowadays, you sleep with your secretary, you go away to a retreat for a weekend, come back, and your church doubles in size. And now you're the fastest growing megachurch in America. Not God. We honor God by honoring his design and intention for sex. Sexual sin is unique among all sins. It is a sin against one's body. That is a peculiar verse in Corinthians. He says, flee fornication. That means any sex apart from holy 
matrimony. We have to keep using the term holy matrimony because there's a lot of matrimony right now. Very little of it's holy anymore. Fornication is any sex outside of holy matrimony. And Paul says, flee it, quit, turn it off. Don't go that direction. Every sin that a man doeth is outside the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. This would also say that you don't love yourself. We might take a little bit of a, a theological stretch and say, fornicating is really no different than cutting yourself because you're hurting yourself. You're, you're not literally scarring your arm or your thigh, but you are scarring your soul. And you're doing it because you hurt somewhere else and you want acceptance or attention. Cutting yourself like the Gadarene demoniac is self-harm. Paul said here by the Holy Spirit, sexual, excuse me, sinful sex is self-harm. We can make all the pills in the world we want to clear up STDs, but the only surefire way to prevent them is monogamy with the partner who you're married to, who stays faithful to you. Thank God for medicine that helps clean up your mistakes, but there's still stuff out there we can't treat yet. Sex is exclusive to marriage. God designed sex exclusively for the confines of holy matrimony. For this reason, the single believer would do well to heed the wisdom of Solomon, who said, Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. So you have to know when that time is. We pray over our children. They marry the right person at the right time. They marry the right person at the right time. We're endeavoring with all of our heart to love our children and be so involved in their life, they never want to leave. And not because they're insecure or lazy or weird, but because they love being a part of our life. When you don't raise your children as such, they hate you by the time they're 13 and they can't wait to turn 18 to have legal rights to leave you. And when that's the case, they will fall into the arms of the first boy or girl that shows them any semblance of attention, and they'll end up marrying the wrong person at the wrong time, and it'll hurt their life maybe for decades. And that will be mom and dad's responsibility. Amen. There's an appropriate time to stir up both romantic and sexual love. To pre prematurely awaken either is dangerous, producing either emotional harm or sexual deviance and defilement. The New Testament gives strict protocol for how to avoid awakening love before the time. I like what 1 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Say it again, because our culture doesn't know this. I, I grew up in Seattle, and I remember a 12-year-old in our neighborhood having sex with guys behind the neighborhood in the barn. 12-year-old. Open business on a 12-year-old in my neighborhood in 1992. What's a 12-year-old doing sexually active? 
The Pauline, excuse me, this Pauline doctrine was immortalized in the Baptist children's song. Be careful, little hands, what you touch. Because the Father up above, he is looking down with love. Be careful, little hands, what you touch. That should kill your dating career. <laughs> You're awfully quiet. I guess you didn't obey that commandment, dating. Brother Hagin used to say, if you can't say amen, say oh me. <laughs> 1 Timothy 5.2 New Living Translation says, Treat older women as you would your own mother, and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. So if you're dating or courting, you have to view her as your sister until you're in a marriage covenant, and now she changes who she is, and you change who you are by the hand of God, and now it's open season on intimacy. Until then, are you going to grope your sister's boobs? That's nasty. It's called incest. And it takes a strong, spiritually mature mind and heart to be able to make that switch or to recognize. Until you say, I do, man, she's pretty. She got the right curves. Man, he's handsome. He's got muscles. And boy, I want to touch him. But right now, we're still brother and sister in Christ. That takes a renewed mind. And seeing as how all we have is a bunch of seeker-friendly, best Thursday ever junk being taught, the church is not this mature anymore, nor this restrained. But the scriptures still stay the same. All women are to be treated as close family because we are the family of God. Courtship and marriage begins to separate a spiritual sibling apart from marriage. The marriage covenant changes the nature of the relationship and turns a sibling into a spouse, activating the sexual relationship. Just as Jesus Christ will not one day be joined to anyone who is not his bride, so too the law of God prohibits the joining of two humans who are not wedded. Jesus will not be joined to anyone outside the bride of Christ, and you're not to be joined to anybody who is not your bride or your bridegroom. Sex can result in reproduction, but that's not its only purpose or lone purpose. And this is why I say we could probably take these lessons and expand this one alone to five or six because there's a Catholic doctrine that taught for a long time that sex is not for pleasure, only for reproduction, which is why Catholics had such large families because the men said, well, you know, I enjoyed that so much 12 months ago. Uh, let's make another kid. <laughs> That's the only reason we get to do this. Uh, I, think, I think we should have a full quiver. I think we should just be a, an arrow production factory. <laughs> God designed sex to be an expression of love, intimacy, and unity. So monogamous marital sex is the most exclusive behavior in human culture. And I want us to think about that because our culture has so cheapened it. So absolutely cheapened it. It's now... The, now the debate on the blogs and the websites is, should we have sex on our first date or not? You don't even know each other's middle name on the first date. You don't even know what you do for a living on your first date. You don't even know where they're from on their first date. And the question at hand, well, actually, let's say we've gone beyond that. Now we just have hookup sites like Tinder or Grindr if you're gay. We just have hookup sites. You just swipe right and go meet up somewhere. So now we have taken the behavior of the homosexual community in the bathhouses of the 60s and 70s, and we've transferred it over to heterosexuals. 
when God intended for this to be exclusive. This is an exclusive club. Membership of two. Till death do you part. Then after death separates you and you recover from the loss of your loved one. Should you desire to remarry, you can. And maybe in your lifetime you have maybe had sexual intimacy with two people. One of our church members uh, was raised in the Florida Keys, and she was telling me that in the 70s, in the bathhouses of the Florida Keys, they were friends with a lot of gay men in the 70s, because that's the Florida Keys even to this day, that those gay men would boast of having 30 lovers a night in the bathhouses. Now, the bathhouses, YMCA being one of them, the bathhouses of the 60s and 70s, which the government knew was going on, that was the incubator for HIV. Now, I don't have to be too crude with you, but you can imagine the damage done to a rear end being pounded by 30 men a night. And HIV is a blood viral virus transferred through blood. And when you're just swapping partners all night in a bathhouse, HIV will ravage through a community. And it did beginning in the late 70s all the way through the 90s. And our church member who lived in the Keys, said, I went back some years later, and every gay man I, man I knew was dead. Every one of them from HIV. Now, it's horrific. It's a horrible way to die. But mankind was not designed for 30 lovers a night. Skin is not designed to take that much wear and tear. So something else is going on in those bathhouses. It's unhuman. Yes. It's preternatural. Yes. I mean, even a 22-year-old on his wedding day or wedding night or wedding honeymoon won't have 30 sex 30 times in the whole week. You've got to give that stuff some rest. But to be able to do that several times on a weekend, something supernatural going on with that level of lust. Nobody wants to talk about that aspect of homosexuality. And at what point does the rear end just give out? And this is not hate speech. These are medical questions. If we're at a stage where we can't ask scientific questions, then we're not really pro-science anymore. We're retarded. At what point does your rectum give out? And what do you do in a bathhouse when all of a sudden three feet of lower intestine are protruding? We'll parade and celebrate the Stonewall riots, but does anybody ever do a documentary on the emergency room visits? Amen. Monogamous marital sex is the most exclusive behavior in human culture. It is the one thing a person does that can only be done with one exclusive person. That exclusivity alone makes sex sacred. It is the one act that a human will only share with one person and one person alone until death do them part. All other human activities are communal. Eating is a shared experience. Sleeping. You sleep in a bunk with a bunch of cabin f uh, on a, at, a, at a church retreat. Uh, you might share a bed with seven siblings growing up in times of poverty. Sleeping bags all over the floor at a slumber party. I mean, you're communal. Everything we do in life is communal, but this one thing. And even our heterosexuals, our frat boys and our sorority sisters, 
They're just trying to rack up points. So I use the analogy because I don't remember the name of the chemical. There's a chemical that is released in a man when he ejaculates that is known to cause a bonding desire of the heart. So the implication is when he's intimate with his wife, it, the chemical release causes him to bond even more and protect his wife even more. We used the, uh, the analogy a couple weeks ago about when you have sex, it's like giving somebody part of your soul. And when you sleep around, you're just peeling that potato, making french fries with everybody you have sex with. Well, there's only supposed to be one person who's your deep fryer. Amen. And you guys make french fries five, ten times a week if you want to, or you get older. Whatever the Metamucil will let you do. I don't really know. <laughs> Everything else in life is a shared experience but holy matrimony. And for that reason, you should desire it. You should pray it. Whatever you pray for will be blessed. Whatever you pray for will prosper. Never let your sex drive in your marriage dry up. Amen. We'll cover that here in a minute. Genesis 26 says, When the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebecca, he said, She's my sister. He was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought, They will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistine, looked out his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. Immediately, Abimelech called for Isaac and exclaimed, She is obviously your wife. Why did you say, She is my sister? Because I was afraid someone would kill me to get her from me, Isaac replied. Just by observing a caress, it was apparent to a pagan king that Isaac and Rebekah were husband and wife, not brother and sister. Just by a caress. This was not a brother and sister who might be messing with each other as grown siblings do. There was something different about this caress. It doesn't say intercourse. It says a caress, which is why Corinthians says it's good not to touch a woman and that we're to treat our sisters with all purity. Uh, one translation, I think, I don't know if it's the NIV, it says uh, he saw them engaging in foreplay. So what does that look like? How could they be seen? Where were they at? I don't know, they're getting frisky somewhere around town where the king had just passed by his window and go, whoa, 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 that's not what brothers and sisters do. Wait, that's Isaac. Get that guy in my throne room right now. I saw, uh, mm, we don't even do that with our sisters here. That's messed up. You guys got to be married. <laughs> there was marital intimacy communicated by that touch. It's good for a man not to sensually touch a woman to whom he's not married. And all women are to be treated as sisters with all purity. So that also means, ladies, you have to know how you ought to be touched and treated. Yes, amen. You need to have some self-respect. It ought to violate you. It ought to offend you if someone wants to touch you in a way the Bible forbids. Amen. Don't look at it as being desired. Look at it as being defiled. Yes, amen. That's good. That's good, now, the key, though, is that you've got to have a good, solid relationship with your father, the first man in your life. And if you don't, you'll look for any kind of touch because daddy was never loving. And that'll open you up to a lot of hurt because there you'll be peeling potatoes with five different men wondering why your deep fryer is empty when you get married. The marriage fountain. The poetical books address the exclusivity of marital sex by means of symbolism. When describing his first wife, the Egyptian princess Solomon stated, You are my private garden, my treasure, 
my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. I want to read that again. Solomon looked at his first wife because we know he went on to have a lot more and he ruined everything. But he said of her, you are my private garden. That's pretty exclusive. No one else comes into this garden but me. My treasure. You protect treasures. My bride, a secluded spring. It takes a little bit of work to get there. A hidden fountain. It has to be uncovered. It isn't on display for everyone to see. That also lets me know she probably dressed pretty modestly. She wasn't interested in showing her husband and every other guy in town her fountain. The king described the intimacy of his marriage as a private, as private, secluded, and hidden. This is our sex drive. It's private, it's secluded, and it's hidden. We had a couple. <laughs> this has been 10 years ago, so they don't go to church here anymore. They got married. Hooray. They go on vacation. Honeymoon. Hooray. They post vacation pictures on Facebook. Hooray. Except she's in a thong in every picture. And I thought, well, great, man. We all know what your wife's butt looks like now. And so does every guy on the beach. I get a swimsuit bottom, but a thong? And, and all right, let's take it, maybe go broader with our stand. All right, so she wears a thong to the beach because you don't know nobody. Quit taking pictures of her butt and putting it on Facebook for the whole church family to see. Really? <laughs> have some respect. But to have respect, you have to be taught respect. You have to know what respect looks like. Their intimacy was exclusive and precious. It was a garden for him to enjoy, a treasure for him to gaze upon and value, a fountain reserved from him alone, a secluded spring, and a hidden fountain are Hebraisms for the sex drive and the act of sex. In both cases, they are to be hidden from everyone but a spouse. That's why threesomes are so nasty. All that is is porn coming out of a husband. He's fed on porn, and no longer can he be enticed by his wife, which ought to be exclusive and, and very erotic because it's his and his alone. He wants to bring some third party, some man whore or whore whore into the marriage bed and just muck up the spring and then condemn or pressurize his wife into doing it or vice versa. Maybe she wants to bring some guy in. The second you make a threesome, you, you are initiating homosexuality into your marriage bed. And there, your marriage bed will be defiled. I want us to begin to adjust our, our concept. Hebrews does not say the marriage bed is undefiled. The, the Greek says keep the marriage bed undefiled, which means you can defile it with gross acts of sex. And there are gross acts of sex heterosexuals engage in. There is a certain hole you have that is exit only. Love making is not to be brown. I had Miss Valerie do a long study. She almost graduated medical school. She did an in-depth study for me on the cellular structure of the vagina versus, right, Miss Valerie? Versus the cellular structure of the rectum. And the rectum is not designed, not even the rectum of your wife, men. It's not designed for that kind of contact. It will tear. It will bleed. It will puncture. And then what happens if you get feces into your abdomen? 
You're awfully quiet. Some of you are cringing. Good for you. Some of you are like, man, you just shut down one of my holes. Uh, uh Uh-huh. This is... uh, pause for effect because I really got nothing else to say right here. I'm, <laughs> I'm just enjoying the aroma of your hearts processing all this going, people in this church do that? Yeah. Because yeah. they exposed themselves to vileness years ago and never detached. So it's acceptable to them. So let me ask you, how are you any different than a gay? What's the difference between a female rectum and a male rectum? Taters, taters. All right, we should move on there because you guys are just. Yeah, that's like God Almighty. Let's move on. My next sermon in main service will be on repentance. So we may have an altar call. We won't even ask. But if I stand in front of somebody and say, you nasty, you'll know what we're talking about. (laughs) Drink water from your own well. Here's Proverbs 5, 15 through 20, New Living Translation. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? Why have sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. In fraternities, sorority girls get passed around. It's almost like a bong. Just take a hit from her or just hit her. So vile. It's nothing but a meat market. That's why I don't believe any Christian has any business in any sorority or any fraternity ever. Ever. You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an immoral woman or fondle the breasts of a promiscuous woman? So let's discuss this proverb here. Proverbs confirms the exclusivity of monogamous heterosexual marriage because the terms here are a man and his wife. A man and his wife. Never share sex with anyone but your spouse. Watching porn is sharing sex with someone. There are the sick freaks that will pay someone to have sex with their wives so they can watch it. One of them notably was the president of our biggest Christian university. Nasty. Porn is no different. Porn is fornication. We get the term porn from the Greek word pornos. Pornography to produce fornication. So to watch porn, to have porn watched in your marriage bed is vile, vile, vile. It will bring demons into your home and into your marriage. It will consume you of a spirit of lust that cannot be satiated or satisfied. Never share sex with anyone but your spouse. If you don't have a spouse, sex is off limits. Also, the best way to ensure your wife is a loving deer and a graceful uh, doe is to marry a loving deer and a graceful doe. 
don't marry a bulldog <laughs> or an ox. And I'm not talking about size. I'm talking about disposition. And once you do marry a loving hind and a graceful doe, then you treat her that way for the rest of her life. If you treat her like a mule, she may start to act like one. Because she'll act like she's treated. Be satisfied by her breasts. Take your eyes off everyone else's. For wives, he is pre-programmed by God to gravitate toward your breasts. Resistance is futile. <laughs> when the word of the Lord says, may her breasts satisfy you at all times, that's open season. <laughs> and 365, you just have to be appropriate in time and location. One flesh. I got to hurry up through this. Marital intimacy in the act of sex is a return to the one flesh union that man was in the beginning before God extracted his rib and built the woman. So this act of sex is mirrored. It mirrors the original creation. Man was one person in the beginning. Male and female created he, him. Then God extracted the rib and built a woman. And now man becomes two people, mankind, anthropos. But when man and woman come together, they come back, and for a moment of time, bing, they're one flesh again according to original design. This is another testimony against homosexuality. Because God extracted female out of male, built a separate entity. They came back together, and God said they shall leave mother and father and be one flesh. Now they're one person in the eyes of God. You can't do that with a man on man. You can't do that with a woman on woman. You can't do that in a threesome. It's husband and wife covenant, holy before God. That's why this is so sacred. When my wife and I pray for our intimacy, because we do regularly, as should every married couple, whatever you don't pray for will wilt. We pray, Father, we thank you for those precious one flesh moments when for one moment in time, what we would call sexual climax or orgasm, you can reach out and hit that bell and for a split second, see what God's creation was like in the very beginning. One person totally unified in intimacy. Nothing more unified, no moment more unified in your marriage than that one moment. Because you're in agreement to be naked, you're in agreement to be intimate, you're in agreement generally looking each other eye to eye, face to face, your body's pressed together, and it's a reward. And with that in mind, you see how vile and defiled everything has become, even in the church. The name of the game is be pure. Amen. Not be as much like the world and the LGBT community as possible and still call yourself spirit-filled. Through the act of sex, a husband and wife can momentarily obtain one flesh status. Their hearts are so united that they desire to draw even closer in their unity. Sex allows for that. After the climax, the two separate and their lives continue until they come together again later. Healthy marriage relationships have regular consensual and pleasurable sexual intercourse. Healthy marriage relationships have regular, consensual, and pleasurable sexual intercourse. If it's always a one-sided affair, it's not healthy. If it's always one-sided, it's not healthy. Through the concept of one flesh and in accordance with the New Testament, a man's body 
belongs to his wife, and a wife's body belongs to her husband. So 1 Corinthians 7, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive, King James says, defraud each other of sexual relations, unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. I've never counseled a single couple who says, we're going to go on a sex fast so we can pray more. Hasn't ever happened in my years of pastoring or serving God's people. Nobody's having that much sex to say, well, you know what? Our marriage life is so healthy. We should probably pray a little more. All right, no sex tonight. We got to pray. Never encountered that. But it tells you something about how sexually driven the Corinthians were. But it also gives you the one condition where you can defraud each other with consent. We agree. We should seek God a little bit more. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you for your lack of self-control. This does address the sex drive of the Corinthians, a very sex-driven culture. Uh, Everybody was having sex regularly, especially with temple prostitutes. Very hyper-sexualized culture. Probably would give Hollywood a run for its money. For this reason, the lack of regular sexual intimacy in a marriage can be indicative of an unhealthy marriage. The lack of regular Sexual intimacy in a marriage can be indicative of an unhealthy marriage. Granted, should a couple live long enough, natural desires may fade, but usually one mate's desire fades before the other person's. 1 Corinthians still applies to these situations. And just as premarital sex is not God's will, likewise, a sexless marriage falls short of God's plan for marriage. There are numerous reasons why a marriage becomes sexless, but it usually boils down to either pain or shame. So let's talk about this because we do have sexless marriages in our church. I usually remind young single people of this. Don't be hasty to get married because you can't keep your hands to yourself. You can't even keep your hands off yourself right now. But there'll come a time if you marry the wrong person that's dysfunctional, that you could be even in a worse position knowing he or she's laying next to you naked, but they're not going to be intimate with you because something's broken in their soul. So pain or shame, emotional mistreatment and neglect. This is one source of sexlessness in a marriage. Emotional mistreatment or neglect. Sexual intimacy as opposed to animalistic lust-driven hookups begins in the heart. Uh, Tender doesn't begin in the heart. Tender begins in the loins. Tenderloin. That's a little fun pun right there, right? Tinder is a dating hookup. Grinders, the gay version. Swipe right to go have sex in a bathhouse somewhere, or a car. That stuff's not driven by a heart. It's driven by horniness, pheromones, lust. Healthy, regular intimacy requires a healthy relationship between husband and wife where both are selflessly putting their spouse before themselves. Don't allow your marriage to drift apart emotionally. Generally speaking, wives need to feel love to have sex, but husbands need to have sex to feel loved. That's a generality, but it works pretty good. That'll fit most of the time. That's like an adjustable crescent wrench. It'll fit most bolts. Make sure you are not mistreating your spouse emotionally or neglecting them emotionally. If you're always talking down to them or you're always absent and you just want to come home and have sex, they're going to feel used. It's possible to make your spouse feel like a prostitute. That's unacceptable. 
Second point, emotional pain or trauma from the past. Past sexual trauma, which could include years of porn addiction, which is also why I counsel women, don't marry a man with porn addiction. Honeymoons don't cure porn addictions. Jesus Christ walking in your life will cure you, deliver you from a porn addiction. I don't believe anybody with a porn addiction or a game addiction or a drug addiction should be married. Those three things destroy marriages and they rob a beautiful relationship of what should be. This is why you take your time courting and you get to know a person's weaknesses. It's also when we do premarital counseling, we ask very uncomfortable, embarrassing questions. Are you hooked on porn? You play games too much? You got any drugs? Uh, 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 well, well, what? Which one? Well, it's a deep subject. Which one are we going to draw out of? <laughs> Past sexual trauma is devastating and horrifically long lasting. Now, porn addictions can change the shape of your brain. They can rewire your nervous system. It's, it's a powerful, powerful drug. You don't play with it at all. If not resolved before marriage, even past rape or sexual promiscuity can lead to years of sexual frustration and even divorce. Though past trauma is almost never the victim's fault, almost never, the cleanup and restoration are their responsibility. There might be a few instances where uh, rape is never acceptable, but maybe you were sleeping with three or four guys that night and the last three were not consensual. Okay, well, why were you sleeping with three or four guys that night? Or, or girls. Cleanup and res restoration are the responsibility of the victim. Cleanup and restoration are their responsibility. If you know you're broken, you got to fix yourself. And you fix yourself through prayer, through therapy, through counseling, through Bible study, through forgiveness, through renewing your mind. It is a work. It's a process. There's no magic wand that just makes you Shazam all better. If this is affecting your sex life, you owe it to your spouse to seek help. You owe it to your spouse to seek help. Don't allow your past to continue to rob your future. And then we have this last one, just physical pain. Every marriage will face in sickness and in health, especially if your wife's delivered a baby. The doctor will say no intercourse for at least six weeks. If you are so horny and so driven of a lust that you would hurt your wife because you can't constrain this or you can't skin that cat some other method, you're a selfish, animalistic husband. I did have to tell one couple, they were, the wife said, he's pressuring me. I said, send him to me. And I said, if you force your wife to have sex in the season, I will beat you. You are a useless man. This is ruthless and selfish. Your wife just delivered your child. She's still recovering, you moron. What's wrong with you? But they don't do what I say, so why would they honor the doctor too? When you won't listen to experts in their fields, you're an idiot. In these times, excuse me, sickness almost always detracts from sexual intimacy. In these times, the neglected spouse should lovingly nurture their sick mate back to health. Uh, duh. It's what love does. Honey, I know you're running a 108 degree fever, but can we get naked? Oh, you're, hey, I'm holding your hair back from throwing up. Um, oof. When you're done here, can we take you to the bedroom? That's a selfish human being. Selfish, selfish, 
selfish human being. Should the sickness or pain be prolonged, other avenues may need to be pursued to satisfy sexual needs. Once that pain is passed, regular marital intimacy can and should resume. And I add this. This, this, this always comes to my mind. There will come a time in every marriage where you are intimate for the last time. Whether because of death, because of, as Song of Solomon says, the caper, flower, fadeth, which is an Old Testament aphrodisiac, the Hebraism for sex drive. It just, you just no longer desire it. There will come a time in every marriage where it's the last time you're sexually intimate. That should not have been six months ago. With that mindset, you're like, honey, I don't know what's wrong with us. We need to get fixed because we, we need to be better than this. May God give our singles grace to stay pure and our married couples grace to enjoy marital intimacy. Amen and hoorah.